0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson. And as this show is released on 316, Steve Austin Day, we'll be taking a look back at a time well before Stone Cold set the WWF on fire. We're going back to 1992, January 12th to be precise, right before... The famous 1992 Royal Rumble. We have the January 12th, 1992 episode of Wrestling Challenge. And our hosts are, of course, Bobby the Brain Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon, fondly remembered by everyone of a certain age. Unless you're one of those Wrestling Observer Awards voters who voted Monsoon the worst announcer for however many years running, which I always thought was unfair. I mean... We weren't expecting Monsoon to call a space-flying tiger drop or anything like that. He he was very good in the role that he was asked to do with the WWF. But this is our first look at a B-show. And the B-show Wrestling Challenge was the successor to All-Star Wrestling and was generally taped the day after... Superstars would be taped just as the way All-Star was taped in Hamburg, Pennsylvania the day after Championship Wrestling would be filmed in Allentown. And when everything switched over in September of 1986, the first three episodes of Wrestling Challenge were not Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby the Brain Heenan. At the first taping, we had Gorilla Monsoon with Ernie the Cat Lad and Johnny V. Johnny V, of course, was a manager at that point, and he would appear on Challenge as a commentator for matches where Heenan would be at ringside with one of his charges. And Ladd was, I think, fired after the first taping, but we never heard him on commentary beyond that. He was also on commentary at uh, WrestleMania II Battle Royal. And no matter how criticized Ernie Ladd's commentary might have been, it definitely was not as bad as the Kathy Lee Crosby insights from that battle royal, such as when Andre wins it, he is the giant. Yeah, thanks, Kathy Lee. Thanks for thanks for showing up here. Wrestling Challenge, this particular episode of Wrestling Challenge is much more famous than the rest. They generally would not run big angles on the B show. From time to time you would see a kind of a minor thing like a Junkyard Dog, Outlaw Bass Outlaw Ron Bass run in in 1988 to kind of get that mid-card to lower mid-card feud going but usually they were reserved for something like Superstars or Saturday Night's Main Event but this show this show is quite the exception as we have the Rockers joining Brutus the Barber Beefcake in the barber shop. the talk show that Beefcake had in 1991 and 92. This was near the end of the barbershop run, which would be cut short by a Sid temper tantrum (laughs) in the barbershop a couple of weeks after this. This show was taped in Corpus Christi, Texas on December 2nd 1991, the night before the This Tuesday in Texas pay-per-view Where there were a lot of happenings To use a guerrillaism On that show Such as a world title change Or so we thought From The Undertaker back to Hulk Hogan You had the infamous Jake Roberts slapping Elizabeth angle And we actually see The Undertaker And Jake the Snake On this particular episode of Challenge Also on this show We have Rowdy Roddy Piper On the eve of what would turn out to be his only title win in the World Wrestling Federation. We also have the new foundation in their ridiculous checkered, taxicab, multicolored, whatever outfits in tag action. And the berserker, John Nord, will also be here as well. With it being one week before the Royal Rumble, there will be an event Center segment on the 1992 Royal Rumble. I didn't want to have a show where I review pay-per-views because that's better left for other podcasts who have been doing that for much longer than I have. Uh, I like watching the one-hour TV. It gives me a nice little time limit. As a matter of fact, the working title of this podcast in the beginning, to give you a little peek behind the curtain, was One Hour Time Limit, where I was going to limit myself to one hour on any given topic in wrestling, although that was broken with last week's episode on the loaded 1987 Superstars show. So we're going to be touching on some of the promos leading up to the 1992 Royal Rumble, which were rather amusing. Certain guys talking about how they were going to win the World Wrestling Federation Championship in the match, who you clearly knew were not going to do it. And I I always enjoy stuff like that. So let's just get rolling right into the show, shall we? That means it means the Undertaker in his original cool carnation, there, and he is facing off here against Scott Bezo. No, not Scott Beo, Scott Bezo, a short time enhancement worker for the WWF, who unfortunately passed away November 1st, 2008 he had kind of a humorous double duty on this particular <laughs> set of tapings he had his first match against IRS uh, a couple of weeks before on challenge and he now of course is facing the undertaker so he literally is having a death and taxes kind of kind of deal there but the undertaker who is technically the WWF champion at this point. Of course, by the time the taping was out, the title was vacated for the Rumble match, and The Undertaker was granted preferential treatment for the 1992 Royal Rumble, where he would enter between numbers 20 and 30, which always kind of bugged me, because why didn't they make it 21 through 30? They made it the last 11 numbers. It seems kind of odd. I I know that they probably wanted to start with a zero at the end, but... We're all smart enough. You know, you can do 21 to 30. We know what you're getting at. But anyway, Undertaker came in at number 20 in that match and played a very subtle, important role, which was grabbing Macho Man after Macho Man had jumped over the top rope, thereby seemingly eliminating himself. But Undertaker just casually sort of grabbed Savage and threw him back into the ring and kind of saved the match in a little bit of a way because Savage was supposed to be there in the final four. The first year for The Undertaker in the WWF is rivaled by very, very few, maybe Kurt Angle in 2000, in terms of just how amazing and effective it was. Of course, he came in at the Survivor Series in 1990 as the mystery partner on the Million Dollar Team as, well, he was Kane The Undertaker at some tapings, but for all that I've ever seen, there are there is footage out there of him as Kane the Undertaker which was filmed right before the Survivor Series, but he was mostly just the Undertaker and he was managed by Brother Love, which was always kind of an odd pairing because Brother Love did not manage anybody else in the WWF. I think the idea was to put the Undertaker with somebody who what didn't already have wrestlers, you know, in a stable or a family or whatever but Brother Love would soon make his way out and in comes Percival Pringle Third, as he was known in world class but as the WWF would give him the great punnerific name of Paul Bearer as Bill Moody was an actual Undertaker, funeral director in, in real life so that's something that really worked out well for them and that pairing I think definitely helped The Undertaker much more than I think it would have had he stayed with Brother Love. Of course, he had his first WrestleMania match that year against Superfly Jimmy Snuka where he squashed him big time in about three minutes. And that was setting him up for much bigger things as during the summer he would enter a feud with the Ultimate Warrior which started on the funeral parlor when the Ultimate Warrior was locked in a casket by the undertaker and that's a that's a show we're probably going to get to somewhere down the road because of the utter ridiculousness of the officials who came out to try to help the warrior tony guria comes out and he tries to open the freaking casket with his bare hands which uh, and then you got renee goulet with like a little mallet and um and pick or whatever to try to open it but he's doing it in such a way he's doing it like really half-assed like at half speed so we'll get to that at some point but The Undertaker was facing the Ultimate Warrior on many house shows Uh, the general result of those would be he would lose by disqualification but he was also very protected in other ways he would lose but lose only in like casket matches or body bag matches as it were The warrior wouldn't of course be there at the end of the summer as he famously ran backstage chasing General Adnan and Colonel Mustafa with a chair and when he got backstage was fired by Vince McMahon. So what happens to The Undertaker? How do we continue the push for the big dead man? Well they had him invade Randy Savage's wedding party with Jake Roberts and Sid Justice makes the save Because, of course, Randy Savage, per the stipulations of WrestleMania 7, is not allowed to be active. So The Undertaker is transferred to Sid Justice, and they have some matches, with Sid generally prevailing in kind of the body bag match format, so as to protect The Undertaker so that he's not pinned. And funny enough that that would actually end up being a WrestleMania main event some five, six years later at WrestleMania 13. But then Sid, of course, would injure himself by tearing a bicep. So with him out of the picture, The Undertaker would be paired up with a reliable upper mid carter Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and Undertaker was beating him around the horn. And that would lead in to the gravest challenge at Survivor Series, where The Undertaker won the WWF title over Hulk Hogan and that is an interesting match to watch in retrospect it's not a good match by any means because Hogan just looks old and slow and The Undertaker was not exactly a dynamic worker at that time but it's an interesting match to watch because of the reactions that you notice that The Undertaker is getting and you can see this on this episode as well where there are some cheers for him when you hear the dong and that theme song is so unbelievably effective because when you hear it it immediately gives you some kind of reaction and here what they do on the broadcast is they like to show kids kind of reacting as The Undertaker is walking to the ring it's usually these nine-year-olds who are just stone-faced staring straight ahead Probably because you couldn't show the 32-year-old guy who's at the show and freaking loves The Undertaker because it was such a cool character at that time. It's a classic example of the gimmick helping a guy and pushing him over the top because he was probably going to be something, but without The Undertaker gimmick, it wouldn't quite have been what, you know, what he ended up becoming. He had the Mean Mark stint in WCW and had a few chances at the title. In fact, there was one match at a house show in August of 1990 against Sting that unfortunately went so poorly that they canceled all future matches between Mean Mark Callis, as he was known at that time, and Sting and substituted in the aging Harley race instead. And that was probably an impetus that maybe mean mark should get out of there and perhaps take a look at the WWF and he had of course met hulk hogan on the set of suburban commando and the seeds were sort of planted there for what what was to come of course he did win the title at the survivor series and then actually defended the title and one of the matches is on youtube against davy boy smith the british bulldog as were his two other title defenses. They were all in Canada and all against the British Bulldog, and he prevailed by pinfall in all three of them before losing the title under specious circumstances at the This Tuesday in Texas pay-per-view. This is actually the second Undertaker versus Scott Bezos match they had met in the spring on one of the uh, television shows. There are some Hogan chants during this match because, of course, as mentioned, at this point, it was right in the middle of the Undertaker versus Hogan little switcheroo back and forth with the world title. And Gorilla talks mentions that Hogan has been talking about this on his hotline, which reminded me, oh yeah, Hulk Hogan had a hotline. And I always wish that somebody had taken recordings of what was on those hotlines back in the day. We all remember the WCW hotline with Gene Oakland and Mark Madden, but the Hulk Hogan hotline, I would love to hear what exactly Hogan was the pearls of wisdom that he was laying out there for $0.99 a minute, or what was it, $5 for the first minute, $0.99 each additional minute, whatever it was. It's like, call up this 900 number and have Hogan cut a... uh, Another cocaine-laced promo, although I don't think he was as on as much drugs then because when we see him during the show, you can tell he is noticeably slimmed down. The Undertaker, with a rather stiff pile driver on Bezo, or at least it looked pretty damn good, he was had him facing the hard camera at first and then turned him to the side. I don't know if that was intentional or not. know in the Survivor Series match he was accused of injuring Hulk Hogan which there's some controversy and it doesn't seem entirely clear whether he actually hurt Hulk Hogan I don't believe that he did because if you look at the tombstone that he delivered on the chair that was provided by Ric Flair his hair his head is about an eight dollar cab ride eight dollars at that time in 1991 an eight dollar cab ride away from the chair so there was no way in hell that Hogan hurt his neck Hogan was just selling the damn injury and that's why you never saw him at the end of that pay-per-view for any injury I know it was reported in the Observer or one of the sheets about Hogan being hurt from that which is just nonsense because if he actually was hurt I think Undertaker would have been he would have gotten a lot more heat for something like that but Here, he's crushing Scott Bezo for a second time, so maybe we can put that little feud to rest. And he's on to the Royal Rumble. Also on their way to the Rumble are IRS, the Repo Man, and the British Bulldog. So let's get some comments from each of those participants. Only one week till Royal Rumble, boss man. Can you take the pressure? Just think what it's going to be like looking up at me being the World Wrestling Federation champion. Great! can you believe it? I can sneak right up to that Royal Rumble. Nobody's ever even going to know what I'm going to be doing. But I'm going to repossess the World Wrestling Federation Championship. <laughs> the British Bulldogs psyched up, bumped up, and ready for the Royal Rumble. The World Wrestling Federation Championship is on the line. I'm coming to the Royal Rumble, and I'm going to power my way through it. Right now, we have the New Foundation getting geared up for their match at the Royal Rumble against the Orient Express, and they are taking on Phil Apollo and the Black Knight. Apollo, probably best known for being a job guy on some of the early Monday Night Raws. He was the opponent for Adam Baum in his debut match of May of 1993 but he, his career started in the mid 80's up in the New England area in ICW and he went on to world class and was actually managed by Gary Hart although world class was kind of not in the best place at that point in the 1980's in that 87-88 time frame. His partner the Black Knight you would see on WWF TV quite a bit and his name is actually Casey Thompson and he has a rather interesting career to discuss. Thompson had been under the mask in the WWF since late 1988, serving as kind of a heel jobber because he was losing to the likes of Coco Beware, Tito Santana, Jake the Snake Roberts, and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Later, though, this would be his last match with the WWF, but he would not wrestle for about five years until he turned up in World Championship Wrestling under his real name and his first match was a loss to Jim Powers on WCW Worldwide so you can see that they did not exactly have big plans for him there he was only there for a few matches over about a year and a half but he would turn up later in a Florida promotion called Future of Wrestling that lasted from 1998 through 2003 that had a lot of big names that didn't really have a home during that time period in the very late 90s and early 2000s when the industry was, I guess, consolidated by the WWF with their purchase of WCW. You saw Kurt Henning, Norman Smiley, The Sandman, a very young low-key was in that promotion and Thompson or the Black Knight was part of a group called the Exterminators which sounds something like out of mid-90s WWF in that they were all portraying Exterminators and he was known as Pesticide Pete which I feel very lucky that I was never nicknamed that my nickname in college was Manic Pete because of my manic nature at that time and I I guess now And also because we had another Pete on the floor who was nicknamed Sneaky Pete because he was about 5'6 and much smaller. Pesticide Pete was paired with Dead Bug Joe and Termite Terry in the promotion, which kind of had a bit of a hardcore style at times. It went out of business in 2003. was actually revived for a very short spell between 2011 and 2013. So, a... I guess, mildly interesting career for Casey Thompson, the Black Knight. Of greater interest to us is the new foundation, Owen Hart and Jim the Anvil Nightheart The new foundation is pretty strongly remembered for a team that was together for fewer than three months. That uh, was due in part to Jim the Anvil Knightheart getting fired in the middle of February for what was termed unprofessional conduct, which... I gotta tell you, it doesn't sound like the Jim the Anvil Nightheart that I know, but Anvil, it was always something with the Anvil during his time in the WWF. He had some legal issues, which Bret Hart goes into detail on in his book, and he was almost fired in 1990, famously, which was why they had the match between the Rockers and the Hart Foundation, where the title was tag team title would move to the rockers but that was canceled when they decided to keep Nightheart around 1991 anvil moved into a commentary role alongside heenan and monsoon on wrestling challenge which seemed like a really strange fit all during that during that period because monsoon and heenan had very good chemistry together and adding a third man to that mix really wasn't for the best The anvil was of course there during the famous moment at the end of a wrestling challenge in August where Heenan took out the NWA world title and told us all that Ric Flair may be coming to the promotion. And that is probably the most memorable part of anvil on commentary. He came off commentary in the fall and had a match against Ric Flair where his leg was injured in the figure four leg lock, thereby writing him out of the Survivor Series. I'm not sure if that was a punishment of some kind, but he was replaced by Sergeant Slaughter. And now this team would be formed with Owen Hart, and I think the idea that they were getting at with this team was similar to the original Hart Foundation concept, where you have Owen in the Brett role, very technically sound, very gifted in the ring and you have Anvil as the power guy who can also provide a little bit of personality to the team and you can say a lot of things about the Anvil but at least he did have personality didn't really come through in his commentary but sometimes in the ring it it would do that he was a decent enough power hand as half of a tag team I don't think he was very good as a singles worker Uh, The same cannot be said for Owen Hart, who is rather outstanding in this match. Uh, Heenan and Monsoon are too busy talking about the Royal Rumble and pumping that up. But we see a top rope drop kick from Owen Hart. It's also a standing drop kick by The Rocket, who is quite tan here. And during this run as a babyface, before he finally turned on his brother Brett at the '94 Royal Rumble, he was never really allowed to show that personality that... We learned about in great detail, uh, unfortunately, after his tragic death in 1999, as a consummate ribber in the locker room, a guy who liked to play practical jokes on everybody, and that's something that could have worked for him. I don't know if it could have, it could have worked for him as a as a babyface if they had just let him do it. I think that they were always keeping him in Brett's shadow to an extent, so maybe it was for the best for him to turn heel and become the kind of a prick there. Uh, at the 93 SummerSlam, I always, I always thought that Owen and his outfit at that and his hair, his hair looked like William Zabka's out of every 80s movie that Zabka was in at that time. You know, Karate Kid, Back to School. You drop Owen Hart into 2017 and he's probably in the cruiserweight division Maybe if his weight was down just a little bit, but you could sneak him into that cruiserweight division in kind of that bully role that Neville is playing right now. Not that I'm watching the modern product all that much, but I, I am aware of what's going on. When the Anvil ended up getting fired, Owen Hart was kind of left floundering there, and at WrestleMania 8, he was crammed onto the card in kind of the way they would do things of, we got to get everybody on the show, and he had a match against Skinner that lasted less than two minutes and included Skinner spitting his chewing tobacco in his face so they tried to cram a lot in there Uh, but soon he would be crammed back into a tag team with Coco Beware high energy and they would wear similar outfits to what he and the anvil were wearing as part of the new foundation High energy did not meet with very much success. It's not like they ever got the tag team championships. And it took Owen a while to kind of become his own man. And that's something we'll probably cover on a a future show because I'm looking forward to maybe doing some mid-90s episodes of Superstars. But right here, the new foundation. On to victory with the Rocket Launcher. The same finisher as the Midnight Express in what is now being used by... Enzo and Cass in WWE it's definitely a cool move when it's done correctly and Owen on this one gets launched more than halfway across the ring so they pick up the win here I do have to correct something from earlier the Black Knight who I always remembered as being under a mask is not under a mask here who knows maybe he just didn't give a crap anymore because as I mentioned it would be his last match in the WWF. There's a bit of a time capsule gem right after this match as Gorilla immediately plugs the WBF Ultimate Personal Fitness Weekend, which is taking place February 1 and 2 in Connecticut. And there's a phone number there, and you must be 18 years or older to call. I wonder how many people actually went to this. The WBF was... Not uh not something that would appeal to the kid audience of the WWF. I always thought those guys looked really gross and all. The only the only thing I really remember about the WBF was how when they would talk about the different everybody remembers Gary Stridum, when they would talk about the other guys who were in the WBF, like Eddie Robin Eddie Robinson is the example that I remember because Bobby Heenan's response to his name being brought up would always be the coach of Grambling? course, Eddie Robinson, famous, uh, legendary coach of Grambling University's football program for over half a century. He was probably about uh, 76 years old at that point, so it was rather amusing to me. And Sean Mooney tells us that we'll be hearing more about this ultimate Ultimate Personal Fitness weekend, which I can't wait to hear about it as he throws to some promos for the upcoming show at the Nassau Coliseum on Friday, January 17th, which was not even the most notable show for the WWF that night because that was the famous Bret Hart-Mountie match, which took place in Springfield, Massachusetts, as they reminded us many, many times on the Royal Rumble broadcast that weekend. Springfield, Massachusetts, everybody. Springfield, Massachusetts. Gorilla really drove that point home where Bret Hart against Doctor's Orders goes into the... His match with the Mounty with 125 degree temperature. And then the Mounty ends up winning by roll up as if, you know, he wasn't protect as if Brett wasn't protected enough by the fact that they were saying that he was sick. So that set up the Mounty and Piper match. And we'll be seeing Piper coming up very shortly here. Where's it going to happen? Simple at the Nassau Coliseum. And who's it going to happen with? It's going to happen with you and I, Undertaker. And what kind of match? your type of match, a casket match. Now, in a casket match, you have forced me to do one thing. Simple. I'm going to have to actually fight for my own life. I am going to have to fight from you rolling me and putting me in that casket and selling it shut, maybe sealing the fate of sit Justice once and for all. Sorry, I can't let that happen. I'm going to promise you one thing, and the people at the Nassau Coliseum, I will roll you in that casket, and the people will stand and they'll say that justice was served. Thanks, Sid. Now we have the Berserker taking on what just about every website calls an unknown, although Cage Match has it as Bob Bradley. Whoever it is is wearing a pink and purplish number on their trunks. That's uh, not particularly flattering. The Berserker, uh, another guy who is well-remembered despite not meeting with the greatest success during his WWF run. The Berserker, of course, is played by John Nord, who was the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Rookie of the Year for 1985. He never really rose above mid-card in all the various places he was at, but... I'm not sure how important wrestling might have been to him as he had other interests such as a car dealership in Minnesota. He's generally regarded as a pretty funny guy, as one of the uh, shoot interviews with him would uh, definitely attest. His gimmick all along is he he was trained by Eddie Sharkey, much like just about every guy out of Minnesota, but... He he would run a Bruiser Brody tribute gimmick for much of his career with the Huss, Huss, which was definitely a callback to Brody himself, who uh, was murdered in Puerto Rico in 1988. Nord came into the WWF in early 1991 as the Viking, billed as being from Iceland, which is Rather unusual You don't really hear too many wrestlers Out of Iceland Although it is a beautiful country I was there last year And I recommend anybody who gets the chance to go to Iceland You should probably go No matter how hipsterish that may sound The Viking gimmick only lasted For about 3 or 4 TV matches Before he was converted into the Berserker Shortly after Wrestlemania 7 Where he did not make the card He was on the first WWF house show I ever attended on April 20th 1991 and he prevailed that <laughs> on that. I don't remember too much about him on that show. He did not win by count out according to the results which I have to imagine is probably a function of his opponent being tugboat that day. I highly doubt he was picking up tugboat and throwing him over the top rope which was the berserker's finishing move for television matches he would win all of his matches by count out which definitely made him unique and memorable and it also made him a threat in royal rumble matches because when he would come out in the 1992 royal rumble Heenan would point out what's this guy's specialty and even though he was definitely not going to be WWF champion, it would plant at least the seed that he was a he was a threat in that match. He did win a dark match 40-man battle royal at a challenge taping in the summer of 1992. That was recently uploaded to YouTube. The 40-man battle royal had some stars in it. Rick Martel was there, DiBiase, Tatanka, a few other guys but if you look at the list of the 40 guys there's a lot of Horowitzes and and Bradleys in that in that group there uh, berserker was also used in the talent exchange between the WWF and the SWS promotion in Japan and he would go over there and work tag matches uh, often with Haku who was another big part of that program he would also work in the what SWS would become the war promotion later on in 1992. I was rather taken by a match that occurred in Japan where shortly after, and we'll see what happens with Shawn Michaels coming up on the barbershop, John Nord, the uh, Berserker, teamed up with Shawn Michaels in SWS to take on Kendo Nagasaki and Kenichi Oya. And I kind of want to see that match because I want to see what kind of continuity we had between the Heartbreak Kid and the Berserker which took place six days before this show would have aired. This is just kind of a quick match here. A lot of the uh, boots, he like to show off the uh, furry boots that Berserker would often wear. Uh, his finisher of course he would just pick the guy up kind of almost like he was going to do a back suplex of some kind and just dump him over the top rope and Heenan uh, decided to do a little Chris Berman back, 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 back as uh, Bradley or unknown as he's known most places uh, hit the floor there led by Mr. Fuji he would enter the Royal Rumble and not really have much success I believe he was fodder for when Hulk Hogan would hit the ring. He didn't even make the WrestleMania 8 card in a couple of months, but so- shortly after WrestleMania 8 he would have one of his more famous angles with The Undertaker, where he would take his sword and try and impale The Undertaker with it. The Undertaker moved, and the sword ended up going through the ring. But The Berserker being established here is a threat for the 1992 Royal Rumble. Could he be your next World Wrestling Federation champion? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, after all, let's face it, the guy did not have any music in 1992 WWF, which was pretty rare. There, By the time the late 80s came around, there were very few guys who came out to no music whatsoever. If I had a suggestion to maybe freshen up that berserker character at the time, of course, he wore that Viking horns on his head when he would come to the ring, which was very reminiscent of a Monty Python sketch from 1970. I'm not as big of a Monty Python fan as some of my friends are Uh, it's kind of unusual for someone who was as nerdy as I was in high school in Model UN to not be interested in Monty Python but I feel like his music could have been that you know spam 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 but then again they might not have taken him too seriously Although I think if the Berserker was around nowadays, you'd probably have some smarter fans maybe chanting spam spam at him. And now a quick word from the vignette for the newcomer to the World Wrestling Federation, the real Native American, maybe a shot at Chief J. Strongbow and his Italian heritage there, Native American Tatanka. This river has been our home for hundreds of years. It's been a source of food transportation refuge the very lifeblood of my people but I now realize just as the river flows in its own direction I must flow in my direction I will be the river I will carry the sacred wisdom of the Indian nation to all nations And there is Tatanka on his way in. I am pretty sure that his least favorite U.S. president is probably Andrew Jackson. It's just a hunch there. Now, during the event center, another... There are so many great promos on this show. I did not know this when I picked it out. It was obviously for the barbershop here. We have Jake the Snake Roberts stepping up to the old karaoke machine. Maybe I should go into karaoke DJ mode, although... I certainly would not make as good a karaoke DJ as my friend Bob is, but let's, let's welcome to the stage Jake the Snake Roberts. He'll be performing from "Octung Baby, U2's One. Is it getting better, Savage, or do you feel the same? Did it make it easier on you now you've got someone to blame? Did I disappoint you or leave a bad taste in your mouth? You act like you never had it and you want me to do it without. Have I come here for forgiveness? Have I come here to raise the dead? Have I come here to play Jesus to the lepers in your head? What I'm trying to tell you is very simple, Savage. What happened to you Tuesday in Texas? You deserved. Elizabeth, sweet as you are, you're not the kind of woman I would ever want. No, I want a woman that'll stand up and show me what she's all about. You wouldn't do that, but Savage, do me a favor. If you're going to come, bring her with you. Maybe I can cultivate her into something even I would like. Excellent job, Jake. I know you changed a few of the lyrics there at the end. I don't recall Bono talking about uh, the lovely Elizabeth or whatever in the song, but, you know, it's karaoke. You can do whatever you want. Although, I would have expected you to perhaps choose a song by Whitesnake. (laughs) Whitesnake Is it getting better, or do you feel the same? Will it make it easier on you now? You got someone to blame. We got a quick match now between Rowdy Roddy Piper gearing up as well for the Royal Rumble, facing off against Louis Spicoli, a very young Louis Spicoli at this point, who is only about 21, 22 years old at this point. Of course, he tragically passed away in February of 1998 at the age of 27. And it was particularly tragic because at that point, he was just starting to get a bit of a break in the business with a small role in the NWO and a feud with Larry Zabisco. Uh, The circumstances of his uh, death were talked about on the uh, great podcast, Between the Sheets, episode number 83, which came out uh, on February 20th. So look that up on iTunes if you want to learn more about that situation. Spicoli had been working as an enhancement talent since 1988 so I'm sure we'll get back to him at some point I know I'll definitely be doing 1988-89 WWF shows as for Piper at this point he was only in the Royal Rumble the Bret Hart Mountie match had not been sorted out yet where Bret lost the title on Friday and then Piper would be inserted in but here you have and talking about how Piper has never held a title, so plant that seed right there. Spicoli gets in some mild offense there, but the <laughs> the hot rod gets the win with the sleeper hold on Spicoli. Uh, I have to love how Spicoli just bumped like crazy here, got thrown into the ring post and did a did a 360 after running into the post, so good job by him. Uh, Piper, they said he had given up his job on superstars as a commentator to get ready for the Royal Rumble. I didn't remember any circumstances surrounding that. I know that there was an angle where he got into it with Ric Flair and then Flair hit Vince McMahon with a chair at one point. That was in September. It was right before what would have been Flair's first match. But at this point, you're watching this, and you had no idea that Rowdy Roddy Piper was going to be facing the Mountie for the Intercontinental title on Sunday, let alone win the title, the only title he would hold in the WWF, at least from a singles perspective. I don't think he ever won a tag team title later on. My theory on Piper and that IC title reign there is perhaps a bit of a reward ...for him being such a team player in 1991... ...stepping in and working on Superstars... ...as the color commentator originally alongside the Honky Tonk Man. I know he hated the Honky Tonk Man and would talk about that to no end on later shoot interviews. He was also there to put over Virgil, which he did very effectively. People may not believe that, but Virgil was over like crazy in the summer of 1991 and that was in large part due to the fact that Rowdy Roddy Piper was there every step of the way to kind of boost him up a little bit and then come the fall when Ric Flair comes in who's there to kind of face him in his first matches on house shows well Flair did face Hogan at first as well but Piper had matches with Flair all around and was actually losing those matches which was very unusual because Piper did not take pinfall losses very often Uh, As a a heel, there's probably fewer than three or four pinfall losses that he ever had. And even as a babyface, he did not lose very often, but he did to Ric Flair. And I think he may have been rewarded down the road with this brief Intercontinental title run, knowing that he would eventually put over Bret Hart at WrestleMania as planned. I know in the first episode of Greetings from Allentown, I kind of crapped on Roddy Piper's later run. After his comeback in 1989, but 1991-92 Roddy Piper up to WrestleMania 8 was not so bad in retrospect, after all. Ooh. And now it's time for the barber shop with Sean Michaels and Marty Ginetti, The Rockers, barbershop, of course, hosted by Brutus the Barber Beefcake. And Sean and Marty are here to try and settle their differences once and for all. And this was so beautifully done on two different levels. So we're going to kind of take it from the Rockers' breakup perspective, and then we'll get to Bobby Heenan's masterful commentary in just a minute. The Rockers in 1991, and we're going to have plenty of chances to talk about the Rockers in their first few years in the WWF in future episodes, but 1991 started out very, very good for them. They had a match at the Royal Rumble against the Orient Express that, by all the star rating people, is at least a four-star match and is definitely one of the best pay-per-view tag matches of the era in WWF. At the WrestleMania 7 show, they opened against the proto-Faces of Fear, Haku and the Barbarian, and got a very good match there, too. So the thought was maybe they would be on their way to the tag title, but it didn't quite work out that way because come the summertime, they're not even on the SummerSlam card, which to me is a bit of a mystery and probably would signify that perhaps there was an injury there because uh, there are no results for the Rockers between The middle of July until early September There's only one match and that is in Orlando, Florida at the beginning of August But So they weren't working at that point When you get down to the fall And you start seeing some tensions with them Starting at the Survivor Series and we're going to take three flashpoints here At the 91 Survivor Series the Rockers are in the uh, Survivor Match and Gorilla Monsoon completely screws up on commentary. Uh, what he was supposed to kind of be putting over—that Shawn was hot dogging it and staying in the ring—and Gorilla on commentary is saying Marty doesn't want to cha- He does. Marty doesn't want to tag into the match. And it, when you when you watch that match, it kind of seems odd, given you know what we know happened. But there was definitely tension, some pushing and shoving between them. There was a miscommunication spot. And neither one of them ended up surviving the match. Later, in December, on Primetime Wrestling, and this match is very interesting for those uh, who followed Shawn Michaels' career all the way to the end. There is a Primetime match between Ric Flair in one of his early matches against Shawn Michaels. And it's quite funny because, of course, that would be the final match for Ric Flair at WrestleMania 24 and what happened there was you had Marty Jannetty at ringside there's a spot where Michaels gets dumped out of the ring and he's pretty much out of it and he's laying there Jannetty picks him up in a fireman's carry and rolls him his lifeless body into the ring so Flair just kind of looks at it and decides you know what I'm going to go for the pin, but because I'm Ric Flair and I'm a complete dick, I'm going to put my feet on the ropes at the time, too. So, Flair gets the win. Sean is not happy about the fact that Marty rolled him back into the ring to take the pinfall. And perhaps that's justified. Perhaps they're trying to build a little bit of suspense as to who's going to be turning on who here. You could kind of get the sense that Michaels was going to be the guy, even though the signals from commentary were perhaps a little bit mixed. And late December, on Superstars, the Rockers got a World Tag Team Championship match against the Legion of Doom, a very rare face versus face match. And it only ran about five or six minutes. And the end of the match, the Rockers, everybody was in the ring at the same time, Hawk, Hawk, uh, was knocked out of the ring and Animal had Marty Jannetty picked up and Sean drop kicked Animal in the back who fell forward and landed on Marty Jannetty and got the pin one, two, three, and Sean was not happy about Marty getting pinned there and that was about two weeks before this so now they are in the barbershop to try and settle things out and the way they do it is they're you know there's definitely some tension there. Marty Janetti says, you know what? I'm gonna turn my back, and if you wanna walk away, walk away. So what you think is gonna happen is that Michaels is gonna nail him from behind, but he doesn't. He goes up, grabs his shoulder. Oh, you almost think he's gonna hit him again, but then decides to shake his hand. They hug, pause a beat. Michaels gives him the tap on the chest, which is probably a signal, one, two, three. And then BAM! The super kick. And it's often thought that the he was super kicked through the barbershop window, but no, the super kick came first. But he lands the super kick on him and then go, runs over to him and picks him up and then rams his head through the barbershop window, which was quite a shocking moment. but. There were all kinds of shocking moments on WWF TV. You had a, During this time period, you had guys getting locked in caskets. You had guys getting bit by cobras. You had all sorts of weird crap happening. So what's a guy getting thrown through a window? I mean, this was nothing compared to what happened with Shane McMahon and Kurt Angle in that match at the King of the Ring 2001. And as if that wasn't enough, Sean grabs the issue of WWF magazine that happened to be lying there, with the Rockers in the center. And there was an article, I guess, about their tensions or whatnot. And the middle of the magazine was a perfect split between where Sean and Marty was. So Sean looks into the camera and says, Is there a problem with the Rockers? Jack! he didn't say Jack, but that would be a staple of his later promos. And he channels his inner Sinead O'Connor and rips up the magazine and takes the half with Janetti and throws it at him and I thought that was very well done and then he just kinda you know tosses his own picture aside and they show a replay of <laughs> Gennetti from the other side of the barbershop window which I don't know some people might say that was exposing the business you know, why would they why the hell would they have a camera on the other side of the window but eh, you're just doing television there and now Heenan Heenan's role in this he is friggin incredible I mean January 1992 Bobby Heenan might be the greatest month in history for any wrestling commentator of all time and I know that's boiling and drilling things down awfully specific but when you consider his performance during the Royal Rumble match freaking out for Ric Flair and then you factor in the Rockers split which took place a week beforehand Heenan Early on in the interview, he's saying, they need each other. They need each other. And when they shake hands, he says, told you, told you. One without the other isn't any good. And right as he finishes that sentence is when the super kick lands. And Heenan says, oh, I knew he was going to do that. I just knew he was going to do that. He doesn't need Janetti. I've been saying that off and on. And it's so hilarious, but it doesn't take away from what's happening on screen. He's just coming across as a weasel. I mean, that's why he is the weasel. But it's just so unbelievably brilliant. But he's not—he's not even done with that. He oh, there's plenty more. When <laughs> when Janetti gets thrown through the window by Sean Michaels, he <laughs> this is this is crazy. He said, "Did you see that? Janetti tried to dive through the window to escape. What an act of cowardice!" <laughs> and gorilla is so outraged but oh blind and heenan does express that maybe marty Jannetty will not be ready for the royal rumble since he's busted wide open there and in fact he would be replaced in the match by nikolai volkov of all people i don't want to sell monsoon short his indignant Response to what Sean did also made this uh, a very, very strong segment here. But it worked on a couple of different levels and is definitely one of the most memorable pieces of WWF television that you would ever see. I do remember in college we had a wrestling group of people that we, we would watch uh, the Monday Night Wars together uh, from 98 to 01. And uh, there was one guy who actually had a gif file of the barbershop window incident as his wallpaper on his computer now when you think about this a computer in 1998-99 probably could not really handle that and in fact his computer would pretty much seize up at all times because he had this wallpaper that was just Shawn michaels throwing Genetti through a through a window, so he could watch it at all times. I think that might have been a short term thing just to show us, but that was always kind of funny. Of course, now we live in such a gifified or jiffified culture. I'm a gif guy. We live in such a gifified culture that I'm surprised more people hasn't haven't followed my good friend Mark's lead and uh, <laughs> and and made such files the wallpaper on their computer, but. As Heenan says, the Rockers are history and Shawn Michaels would, of course, be off to the races and we'll have plenty more on him, I'm sure, going forward. They need each other. You know that. Sounds fair to me. He's not going to walk away. They need each other. The other isn't any good. Uh Oh! Oh, I knew he was going to do that. I just knew he was going to do that. He don't need Janetti, I told you that off and on. Are you kidding? What What a despicable act that was! Oh my God! Right through the glass window of the barber shop, Genetti tried to dive through the window to escape. Did you see that? Are you blind? What an act of cowardism. We have Gene Okerlund in the event center now, and I'm gonna pump up the Royal Rumble a little bit with remarks from three of the participants, although actually four, because we have a tag team, but it's actually three because one of them wouldn't make it to the Royal Rumble. First, we get remarks from Hulk Hogan, which is the usual eye-roll stuff that we would get from Hogan in early 92. You know, that would start out, You know something, Hulkamaniacs! And then we get to the Nasty Boys. And one of the Nasty Boys did not make it to the Royal Rumble. In one of the more infamous out-of-ring confrontations between wrestler and fan of the time period brian knobs was stabbed four times by some fans in the peoria illinois area who had followed the nasty boys and irs i I do love the fact that irs and the nasty boys were (laughs) riding together on their way out of a wwf live event Sags was hit with jumper cables, apparently, which caused a gash in his head and a concussion, but he still made the match and was in rather early and tossed out during the Bulldog and Flair one-on-one that went through the first five or six guys in the match. And then finally, we have, with manager Harvey Whippleman, a very rare treat. (laughs) It's a promo by the Warlord As we once again find out why the Warlord generally would not cut promos Harvey Whippleman, not exactly one of the more effective managers I don't think Uh, Downtown Bruno in Memphis might have been a little different But on a national level, I don't think he really played I mean, he was a small, weaselly guy Kind of in the mold of Jimmy Hart But he didn't have that kind of it factor that Jimmy Hart definitely had. So let's hear from the Warlord, who ended up being number 30 in the Royal Rumble match and only lasted a few minutes before being jointly eliminated by Hulk Hogan and Sid Justice. You know, Warlord, after the Royal Rumble, you're going to be the World Wrestling Federation champion. All I have to do is destroy 29 other men that come to the ring. And I don't think that will be a problem. And then you'll be looking at the next... World Wrestling Federation champion! (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Warlord, even though I think that promo was scripted right down to the ha-ha-ha-ha-ha that we got there at the end. Here's somebody who definitely did not need any scripted promos written for him, and it's Jake the Snake Roberts taking on Larry Ludden, who had a fun little taping here he took on rick flair earlier on this corpus christi taping so good for larry ludden just kind of a generic west western part of the united states based enhancement talent uh really not too much to say about him i think he had two matches against undertaker in 1991 so he had that going for him but with jake Jake had a lot more going on at this time period with his feud with the macho man Randy Savage, with the famous Cobra Bite angle in the rearview mirror, the slapping of Elizabeth at this Tuesday in Texas in the huge post-match angle, although that actually was not filmed until the next night, and I've probably got to stop tying myself up in all these time warp knots from when the shows were taped to the shows were aired because this wasn't aired until almost six weeks later so let's put that behind us here the fact is and this is another one of those the reality of it is worse than the way you remember it everybody remembers Jake and the Macho Man but the fact is it did not do the kind of business that the WWF was looking for In main eventing on house shows That might have been a function of the business itself Just kind of taking a turn for the worse There were some scandals in the WWF at that time With the the whole ring boy thing The steroid stuff with Zahorian Was starting to come home to roost As he had been convicted And then you had Hulk Hogan Lying his ass off on Arsenio Hall That would actually kind of touch Jake in an odd way because as a result of a lot of that, Pat Patterson, Vince McMahon's right-hand man, took took some time away from the business, took one of his many hiatuses, and the idea that Jake had was that he would be made part of the office after a while and that he would be allowed to put his great mind to use in booking storylines going forward. And that led up to the WrestleMania eight time period, and when Jake was told that he would not be getting that position because the Patterson seat, as I call it, was going to be reserved for when Pat would be coming back, Jake got a little pissed off there, which perhaps rightly so if the story is true, as I'm relaying it right now. I would be I would be pretty ticked if I was in line for something. I know it, it actually did happen to me many years ago in a job, and uh, I didn't get it. Jake decided to hold up uh, Vince for money at WrestleMania 8 so they squashed him like a bug against the Undertaker. So that's where Jake was, and then you didn't see him again until four years later. At least in the WWF, he did make the infamous WCW run in late 1992 with. The match against Sting at Halloween Havoc, which is just a complete... uh, I don't want to say it was a train wreck because it would be an insult to train wrecks everywhere with the... Why don't I hold the snake up against myself and we'll do the snake bite that way. Uh, Jake in the Royal Rumble was... He showed off his brilliant psychology there as he entered during the Piper flare one-on-one and kind of played off that. But another little memorable touch was... When Jake was in the ring, he would always be looking to the back as the buzzer would go off to make sure that Macho Man wasn't coming out. And when Macho Man did come out, Jake hid outside the ring on the opposite side. So when Savage hit the ring, he's looking like, oh, 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 where is he? Where is he? And then he got attacked by other guys, and then Jake slithered back into the ring and went after Savage before being eliminated shortly thereafter. Gorilla says that Jake wants no part of Savage in the Royal Rumble, and Heenan responds by saying, well, maybe he wants a shot at Elizabeth, which prompts a gorilla, will you stop? We then get a peculiar insert promo from Sergeant Slaughter, of all people, uh, saying that he's gunning for Jake in the Royal Rumble, which... They would often do, even if guys were not in feuds. For a minute, I thought, were we supposed to get a Sergeant Slaughter, Jake the Snake feud in 1992? That probably wouldn't have been for the best. But they would often just kind of pair random guys up. Like earlier in the Piper match, you had Virgil in the inset promo saying that he was gunning for Piper. So they were kind of always playing up the every man for himself bit. Jake, oddly enough, despite being one of the top heels and just absolutely a reprehensible character like just the personification of evil is actually getting some cheers in this match because the DDT is still incredibly popular and you can hear the crowd chanting for the DDT at one point Jake kind of takes a step back and kind of, you know, doesn't want to do it right away and kind of lets the crowd cool down a bit and then he hits the DDT for the one, two, three. Jake is just a master psychologist in in just all areas of professional wrestling and it's a shame that he couldn't really keep his head on straight going forward. I, I wonder why perhaps they now that he's clean and he's in the Hall of Fame and he's on the DDP yoga along with, seems like DDP has put uh, all, a lot of uh, old timers on that program, why he might not be, you know, just kind of a consultant. I don't know if he's working with them or not in any sort of way. He's probably on the usual legends deal, but there's definitely a lot of wisdom that he could impart. Just send him down to the NXT performance center once a month just to just to talk about psychology because I think there's a lot to be to be learned there. So Jake the Snake Roberts, nearing the end of his legendary 1986 to 1992 WWF run. do it for this week's show although there is a nice little easter egg at the end of the youtube video with lord alfred hayes doing the promotional consideration paid for by the following and we do have double dragon double dragon 2 is in there along with a shampoo commercial and a few others so if you stick around to the end of the video you'll probably enjoy that i did not do my plugs earlier on i don't believe so why don't i just do them again here Uh, You can reach me on Twitter at GFAllentownPod. You can send email feedback. Call me out for any corrections, anything wrong I might have said. Greetings from Allentown at gmail.com. Subscribe to this podcast if you haven't, whether it be through the SoundCloud RSS or on iTunes. Yes, we are on iTunes right now. Please rate and review. If we get to 2000 reviews on iTunes, I'll tell you all about Bruce Prichard's departure from WWE. Just kidding, I, you know. They they did that on the Something to Wrestle With podcast and it worked pretty well, but I'm not too concerned with having 2000 iTunes reviews, but you know, feel feel free to weigh in. Four star, five star, it really doesn't matter. After all, at the end of the day, this is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be fun watching wrestling. We're not supposed to be pissed off because Roman Reigns is being pushed. It's just an unfortunate fact of life. If you don't want to watch Roman Reigns, you can always turn it off and turn this stuff on from 25 years ago when it just gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling seeing Marty Jannetty thrown through a window. Right? Right? Yeah, this is supposed to be fun. So, for next week's show, I do not really want to do three straight WWF shows, so we're going to jump out of the promotion for next week, and we're going to head back down to Atlanta for what's actually the NWA, although they are owned by Ted Turner at this point, for my favorite wrestling show that's also this name of a drinking game du- not WCW Don't I stopped myself right there NWA Power Hour from August 18th 1989 and 1989 was a critically acclaimed year for the NWA starting off with the Flair Steamboat Series the trilogy and that leading right into the legendary Ric Flair-Terry Funk feud, and that's where we'll find ourselves in August of 89. Ric Flair will actually be wrestling on the show against the Cuban Assassin. We'd al- we will also see Sting facing off against Ron Simmons. Terry Funk will be there hosting his talk show st- segment called Funk's Grill, and the main event match will be Lex Luger against Wildfire Tommy Rich. Luger, of course, the United States champion at that time and in the midst of probably the best run of his career, but we'll definitely be going into more detail on that next week. So do tune in next week to Greetings from Allentown.